scripture reading this afternoon is from Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We'll read verses 1 through 7, page 659 in your pew Bible as we think about the third commandment. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, we'll read beginning at verse 1. It says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Read that in connection with Lord's Days 36 and 37 of the Heidelberg Catechism on page 890 in the back of your hymnal as we continue our uh, study of the uh, Catechism's teaching on the Ten Commandments, Lord's Days 36 and 37. These four questions we'll read together responsively. First it asks in question 99, what is God's will for us in the Third Commandment? That we neither blaspheme nor misuse the name of God by cursing, perjury, or unnecessary oaths nor share in such horrible sins by being silent bystanders. In summary, we must use the holy name of God only with reverence and awe so that we may properly confess him, call upon him, and praise him in everything we do and say. Then it asks, is blasphemy of God's name by swearing and cursing, really such a serious sin that God is angry also with those who do not do all they can to help prevent and forbid it. Yes, indeed. No sin is greater or provokes God's wrath more than blaspheming his name. That is why he commanded it to be punished with death. And in question 101, but may we swear an oath in God's name if we do it reverently. Yes, when the government demands it or when necessity requires it in order to maintain and promote truth and trustworthiness for God's glory and our neighbor's good, such oath-taking is grounded in God's word and was rightly used by the saints in the Old and New Testaments. And then finally, may we also swear by saints or other created things. No, 
A legitimate oath is calling upon God as the one who knows my heart to witness to the truth and to punish me if I swear falsely. No created thing is worthy of such honor. Then, if you'd like to follow along, I'll read also from questions 54 and 55 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism on page 972 in the back of your hymnals, where it asks, uh, what is required in the third commandment? And the answer, the third commandment requireth the holy and reverent use of God's names, titles, attributes, ordinances, word, and works. And what is forbidden in the third commandment? The third commandment forbiddeth all profaning or abusing of anything whereby God maketh himself known. Congregation, a few weeks ago, we uh, looked at the first commandment, recall from Luke chapter 7, and we saw that we must worship God. The uh, woman who had been forgiven much, and so she loved much. Uh, Last week, we began uh, looking beyond just the fact that we must worship God, but uh, started looking at, at how it is that we worship Him. We saw that the second commandment, that we are to worship God by word and sacrament, and not in any other way than He has commanded us in His word. And now we, we continue that theme of how we worship God, only focusing not so much on the means by which we do so, but the, the manner in which we do so, or the, the heart and attitude with which we worship the Lord. And God calls us to worship him with reverence and awe. He calls us to worship him in godly fear. Not taking his name in vain, offering the sacrifice of fools, but using his name, word, and works with holiness and reverence. That's what God calls us to, among other things, in the third commandment. So we're going to look at that uh, this afternoon from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, where the, the preacher, as the author is called in Ecclesiastes 1 verse 1, he, he tells us to watch our step, to watch our mouth, to watch our ears, and to watch our heart as we come into God's house to worship. In those four ways, he teaches us not to offer the sacrifice of fools, taking God's name in vain, but to treat his name, word, and works with reverence. So first, he says, watch your step. As we read in 5 verse 1, where it says, guard your steps when you go into the house of God. He's, he's reminding uh, the people of Israel, you are entering into a holy place, so be careful. Uh, boys and girls, you remember the story of, of Moses, where in Exodus chapter 3, he met God at the burning bush, and, and God said to him, do not come near, but, but take your sandals off of your feet, for the place on which you were standing is holy ground. That's, that's sort of the same thing that the preacher is saying here in 5 verse 1. He's saying, watch your step. You're coming in, into a holy place, the place where God dwells. He's saying, like God did to Moses, be careful. You are coming into the presence of a holy God. The main point of this opening verse is to recognize the holiness of the one that we approach. 
Now, uh, the Old Testament, it speaks of the house into which they enter. This, this was speaking of, of the temple, the place where God manifests his presence among his people. We, we see in the New Testament that the church of Jesus Christ, the, the gathered people, and particularly as we gather for worship, is the place where God manifests his special presence among us. And, and so as we sort of translate uh, Ecclesiastes 5 verse 1 into our uh, New Testament era, this is, this is not speaking in particular of the church building, but of the special presence of God among his gathered people, which consecrates this space as holy. He's saying, as you come into my presence for worship, do not do so flippantly. Do not do so lacking the reverence that befits those who would come into the house of the king. Verse 2, the one who is in heaven and you are on earth. As you come to worship this heavenly king, or question 99, as you, you come to use the holy name of God in worship, you must do so only with reverence and awe. That's how this passage begins in verses 1 and 2, and then is, is sort of bookended the same theme in verse 7. It says that God is the one you must fear. And so as you go into his house, guard your steps. Like Moses, watch your feet. Recognize you are entering into a, a sacred place where heaven meets earth, coming into the presence of a holy God. And so the preacher says, act accordingly. Don't, don't roll out of bed, coming into God's presence, giving no thought to the one you commune with. Don't come into his presence flippantly like Cain in Genesis chapter 4 or like Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10, thinking that you can just worship him however you want, but, but come into his presence with holy fear and awe-filled reverence. Like Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, where he, he beholds the holiness of God in his temple. And he says, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king. Isaiah recognized the holiness of God and trembled. He went into the house of God and watched his steps like Moses. He, he recognized he is not fit to dwell in God's presence, and so he asked God to make him clean. He saw the holiness of God. He saw his own sin, and that led him to a holy fear. D.G. Hart and John Meather and their, their a helpful book on worshiping God with reverence and awe. They, they say reverent worship is the necessary consequence of proper theological reflection. The doctrine of God and his holiness, the doctrine of man and his depravity, the doctrine of Christ and his atonement of the Holy Spirit and his application of redemption together prompt Christians to come into God's presence with holy fear. Recognizing the holiness of God leads to worshiping him with reverence and awe. It leads to a worship that reflects the seriousness of a religion that required the death of God's own son to redeem his people from the bondage of sin and misery. I would submit to you that Isaiah in Isaiah 6 and, and Moses in Exodus chapter 3 and the preacher here in Ecclesiastes 5 understand something of that as does the author of the book of Hebrews, who, who said to us in our call to worship, let us be grateful 
and offer acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Beloved, if we would use God's name rightly, if you would worship him aright and not take his name in vain, but use it only with reverence and awe, as question 99 says, properly confessing him and calling upon him, then the author of Ecclesiastes says you must watch your step and understand the holiness of the one into whose presence you come. Preparing your heart for worship. Preparing your mind, preparing your body, not staying up or staying out so late on Saturday night, not being rushed on Sunday morning. Preparing your heart by, by prayer, pre- preparing your, your, your mind and your family by reading the passage that's going to be preached. Seeking to cultivate a heart that is ready to meet with the King, the one who is in heaven and you are on earth and so you don't come into his presence flippantly, but watch your step. And then second, he says, watch your mouth. Boys and girls, perhaps you've heard that phrase before from, from your mom when you say something that's, that's not appropriate. Watch your mouth. That's, that's what the preacher is, is saying here as we come into worship. Watch your mouth. Make sure that you do not utter a word hastily before God. Don't be rash with your mouth but let your words be few. And question 99 of our, our catechism implies that there is a way to confess and call upon God improperly. And the author of Ecclesiastes is, is urging us not to do that. This is, this is related to watching our steps. As you, you recognize the holiness of the one into whose presence you come and fear him, a, a natural consequence of that fear is not being rash with your words. Not just heaping up empty phrases. As Christ says in Matthew chapter 6, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, thinking that they will be heard for the many words. Do not be like them, Jesus says. The language of verse 1 of our passage, offering the sacrifice of fools. Which one commentator calls the careless performance of religious ritual unattached from any Godward movement of the soul enacted out of custom, peer pressure, or habit. Do not worship God with hearts that are unmoved by his glory, thinking that by merely going through the motions, he's satisfied with your worship. That it will somehow appease him. Um, Sidney Gradanus says that that's, that's part of the idea of this, this phrase, the sacrifice of fools. Uh, Fools believe that their sacrifice, their religious ritual will automatically cancel out their sin, that it will satisfy God even if done without a contrite heart. But as God says in Psalm 50, he is not pleased with that. He says the same thing in, in Psalm 51, that he wants the sacrifice of a contrite heart. Therefore, to worship him, uh, thinking that he is pleased with the mere ritual, is to offer the sacrifice of fools. To think that he is pleased with your worship as you you come into his presence unrepentant for your sin, giving no thought to the holiness and and the greatness of the one you worship, but, but just going through the motions thinking that by mere external participation in religious observances, you are justified. Our catechism says in question 99, that would be to misuse God's name. 
or the, the Westminster Larger Catechism, I, I read just the, the shorter, but uh, the Westminster Larger Catechism, the third commandment, is, is uh, so helpful. And it says that to do that would be not to holily and reverently use in thought, meditation, and word the ordinances of God. Offering the sacrifice of fools is a failure to properly confess, call upon, and praise God's name. As he says, don't come into his presence heaping up words that you give no thought to, but let your heart not be hasty in uttering a word before God. This has to do with the songs that we sing, the prayers we pray, the creeds we confess. We don't do so mindlessly. We don't do so without meaning it. We don't do so thinking that by that act, we are justified before God. But everything we do as we come into his presence to worship is by the blood of his son. So it was so appropriate that uh, we sang that right before the service. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's why it's so appropriate that at the beginning of our service, we would even be reminded of that as we, we confess that our help is in the name of the Lord and that we receive his greeting of, of grace and peace. That we would confess our, our sins, then hear his assurance of pardon, so that we would not think that by merely showing up and, and mumbling through the words that God is pleased with us. The only reason he is pleased with us is because of his son. And by our entering into his presence, aware of his holiness and sorry for our sin, looking to Christ in faith. Any other posture as we come to worship God is the posture of fools. So watch your mouth and do not heap up empty phrases that you do not mean, but only use God's name with reverence and awe and a contrite heart. And when you make vows before him, keep them. And question 102, recognizing that he is the one who knows your heart. Verse 4 of our passage, who takes no pleasure in fools, who, who make vows that they do not keep. It says it's better that you should not vow that, then that you should vow and not pay. So let your mouth not lead you into sin, and do not then say before the messenger, it was a mistake. For God is angered, verse 6, at the breaking of such vows. Question 102 says the same thing. He is not honored when in the context of divine worship or in any other place his people make promises or oaths that they do not keep. We make vows that we do not mean. And this is not just an Old Testament thing, but we make vows before God still in our worship. We, we vow to serve him according to his word. We vow to submit to the government of the church. We vow to teach our children the doctrine of salvation. We vow to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Make these vows in, in profession of faith and at the baptism of our children. Ordination vows, marriage vows, all in the presence of a God who knows our hearts. He says, if you don't plan on keeping them, do not make them. It's better that you should not vow than that you vow and do not pay. And again, it's not just at these special occasions that we make these vows, but even in the psalms and hymns that we sing, we make promises to God. In fact, just in Psalm 66 a moment ago, we, we sang a psalm that, that, that uh, speaks of, of making our vows before God and keeping the, the, the promises that we make to him. 
In fact, in, in virtually all of the psalms that we sing, we are professing our faith in him. We are committing ourselves to walk before him in the way of, of Psalm 1, the entryway into the psalms. The psalms that we sing are, are solemn confessions that we're making before God who knows our hearts. Or the creeds that we confess, we are saying, this I believe. But doing so, and we do not mean the words that we say, is to take his name in vain. And so the preacher says, watch your mouth and do not be rash with your words. But to draw near to listen is better. That's what he says at the end of of verse 1, as he is calling us not to offer the sacrifice of fools. And so as we watch our step and as we watch our, our mouth, he says, watch also your ears. In other words, make sure that you're coming to listen. A commentator, Barry Webb, says foolish behavior or, or vain worship is not simply a matter of talking too much, but also of failing to listen. And this call to listen implies that there is someone speaking. That as we go into God's house, he speaks to us in his word. This implies revelation. To go into God's house to listen is to go there to hear the revealed will of God expounded in his word. Which is the the primary thing that we do as we gather for worship. It is the first thing that we do as we hear God speak to us in the call to worship. It is the central thing that we do in the reading and preaching of the word. And it is the last thing that we do as we hear God speak to us his word in the benediction. And to fail to listen to God's word is to take his name in vain. That's why you read also from the shorter catechism where it says that the third commandment requires the reverent use of God's name, word, and works. And it forbids the misuse of anything whereby he makes himself known. To tune out the voice of God in the word preached would be to misuse his word. To profane that word by which he makes himself known and take his name in vain. That's what we're doing when we, when we sleep through the sermon. That's what we're doing when we don't listen with faith, love, meekness, and readiness of mind as the very word of God. We're taking his name in vain. He has attached his name to that word. He is speaking to us in it. And yet so often we, we tune out, we, we turn our, our minds and our ears off, or we go into hypercritical mode. But Ecclesiastes says, in doing any of these, we are not drawing near to listen, but have become the fool. It's better to listen than to offer the sacrifice of fools. And so what if I, if I tune out the whole sermon? Or instead of sitting under the word, I, I stand over it, and, and then I, I proceed to stand up and, and sing the song of response. What am I doing? Doing precisely the opposite of what Ecclesiastes 5 says. Again, as as question 99 says, I am failing to properly confess and call upon the Lord. I'm not treating with reverence the word of God as the means by which he makes himself known. Christ speaks to us in the preaching of the word. He who has ears, let him hear. I heard a, a story last week that I think makes this point quite well. There was a 16th century preacher named Robert Bruce in Edinburgh and uh, the king attended his church, and the king sometimes didn't really like what he heard from, from uh, Reverend Bruce, and so he would 
uh, make a point to visibly tune out or to sort of chat away throughout the service. Apparently one day his, his chatter got so loud that, that the congregation was, was a bit interrupted by it. And so Bruce, uh, he paused, looked straight at the king, and he said, When the lion roars, all the beasts of the field are at ease. The lion of the tribe of Judah is now roaring in the voice of the gospel, and it becomes all the petty kings of the earth to be silent. He was saying what the preacher in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 says, to draw near, to listen, is better than to let words grow many. When the lion of the tribe of Judah, the king of heaven, roars, it becomes us to be silent and listen. It doesn't matter if we, we like the preacher, if we claim to be reformed, we believe that God speaks to us through the preaching of the word. Listen to the, the second Helvetic confession. It says, the preaching of the word of God is the word of God. Wherefore, when this word is now preached in the church by preachers lawfully called, we believe that the very word of God is proclaimed and received by the faithful. And he goes on and says, and, and that now the word itself which is preached is to be regarded, not the minister who preaches. For even if he be evil and a sinner, nevertheless, the word of God remains true and good. That's saying that the power is in the word. The all-sufficient word that we heard of this morning. And so when the word is preached, it becomes all the petty kings of the earth to be silent. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. To reverently receive the word of God is better than to take God's name in vain. When the gospel is preached, those who love it listen. When Christ is proclaimed, those who love him say how sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. And, and when we hear the gospel preached of Christ, our righteousness, who, who takes our sin and imputes his righteousness to us, when, when we hear that with contrite hearts looking to Christ in faith, God is honored and his name is hallowed and he receives our worship. So watch your ears, watch your mouth, and watch your step. And in all of this, watch also your heart. For throughout these seven verses, the the emphasis is on the attitude of the worshiper. One of fear. One of reverently listening. One of of being humble and slow to speak. As the preacher um, ends in verse 7 saying, God is the one that you must fear. Like Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, you must have a heart that is captured with a vision of his glory. The vision of his grace. For is that not what's expounded as as we draw near to listen in the house of God, his grace and the gospel of his son, which is able to make us wise for salvation? And is that not likewise what is communicated to us in in the sacraments or, or in the psalms that we sing? All of these give us a vision of God's glorious grace that we might fear him. And this fear of which the author speaks is not a slavish fear, but a a filial fear, the the kind of fear that a child has for his father who he knows loves him. 
who by the blood of his son invites us in verse 1 to draw near to him. He, he brings us into his house to, to feast with us, to commune with us. He speaks to us his word, and, and he doesn't leave it up to us to offer the mere sacrifice of fools, but he gives us the sacrifice of his son so that we might be brought into his family. And though he is in heaven and we are on earth, he condescends by grace to make us his and to meet with us. And so we fear him with a reverent awe mixed with joy, delighting that, that Lord's day after Lord's day, we might come and hear his word and sing his praise and, and receive his body and blood. As we quiet our hearts, as we watch our steps, as we close our mouths and listen to his word of the Christ who speaks to us in it, who as we heard this morning is the subject of every part of it. Our, our hearts are then conditioned to fear and worship him in the way that we ought, properly confessing, calling upon and praising him and keeping the vows that we make to continue steadfastly in that word as we behold not only God's holiness, but his grace in the gospel, where that holiness consumed his son who became sin for us, we are ready to come into his house humbly, to listen and to pay our vows, treating God's name, word, and works with reverence as befits him. The gospel, you see, enables us to keep this third commandment out of gratitude. That's why this is in the gratitude section. Yes, we fall short in all of these ways, but, but out of, out of uh, a recognition of what God has done for us in Lord's Days 5 through 31, the grace of his son, we come into his presence. We respond in worship gratefully, reverently, and joyfully, keeping this commandment out of gratitude. So may God, may, may he be pleased with our worship as we listen to his word as we reverently call upon him, and as we do not offer the sacrifice of fools, but as we hold the sacrifice of his son and give thanks. Reverently, joyfully, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the sacrifice of your son. We pray that as we seek to keep your law out of gratitude as the uh, the catechism says, as we begin to make small steps of obedience, that you would keep us from offering the sacrifice of fools, but that your spirit, the same spirit who speaks to us through your word, would, would so work in us to respond to that word humbly and reverently, coming each day to listen to the God-breathed word that gives life, doing so with joy with thanksgiving, for Jesus' sake, amen.